so grateful that God chooses to reveal Himself to us through His holy, inspired, and errant Word. Let's pray again. Lord, we have heard, and what an account it is. A sobering account, one that brings great clarity to our hearts and to our minds as we consider your wrath against sin and the, the weight of mankind's rebellion against you, God. And yet we, we've also heard of your grace and your mercy extended through Noah and his, and his faith which you sustained through the flood. And we are heirs in the promise that you have made since the wheels came off the bus after creation. And in Genesis 3, from that very first sin, God, we thank you that though our sins remain many, before and after Noah. God, your mercy truly is more. As we continue just to ground ourselves in the goodness of your gospel, God, we pray that you'd awaken us afresh to your truth. Uh, Lord, guard us from error as we turn our attention to the example of Noah here and now and the, and the flood. Father, guide us by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to start with a question this morning. What comes to your mind when you hear the word misrepresented misrepresented perhaps there was a time when you were misrepresented maybe your words or some of your actions were perhaps taken out of context twisted to to mean something that you never intended maybe you heard something perhaps in history or the news Maybe it was even something very close to home, something that, that happened, and you were tempted to draw some conclusions about what you heard, and then you began wondering about the source of this information. It's a healthy thing, by the way, to make sure that you're questioning the source that you're receiving your information from. As a matter of fact, I spent many years as a, well, some years, uh, as a high school teacher, a middle school teacher of, of history and of, of English. Uh, and one of the books that I would use at the beginning of the year to, to get kids thinking about the source that they're getting their information from to make sure they're not being misrepresented or their information is not being twisted was this book right here. Anyone read that before? I, I just like live in terms of little kids' books. It's just the season I'm in. It's called The True Story of the Three Little Pigs, only this story is written by the wolf. Alexander T. Wolf. It's a fun read. You guys should check it out if you, if you get a chance, parents, grandparents. Uh, what, what's my point? My point is it's wise to consider your sources because we, if we just bottom line it, we, uh, we, we know and we will admit that we desperately want to believe what we want to believe. And we have a way of hearing what we want to hear from the sources uh, that will tell us where we want to be and what we want to do. So, uh, so it, it's important with all the misinformation, misrepresentation of, of things in, in the world historically and today that we make sure that we're operating based upon truth. Many of us, if we think about misrepresentation, will admit, sadly, that we have literally even tasted misrepresentation. How many of you have been driving down the road and seen a billboard or flipped on the TV and you saw a picture like this? Some of you have seen a picture right over there to, to your left, right? That beautiful burger, just that pristine burger. And then, and then you get taken in by uh, that advertisement and you're sitting with the, that thing ordered on your plate and it looks like it's deflated, something, something over there to the right. 
Some of us have physically tasted it. Or if it's not food, it's, I don't know, you, you called some 1-800 number and got something for $19.99. Advertisements can sometimes be misrepresentations. But hey, what, what do you expect? I guess that's my question for you. What do you expect? In a, in a fallen, broken world like ours, organizations, companies are, are sometimes going to misrepresent facts or, or products. And yet if we turn the microscope inward, I think what we would admit is, so do we. So do we. I mean, you ever been on social media before? There's this thing, right? The Instagram reality versus the real reality of life. Some of you guys have, have seen some of these memes. I decided I wasn't going to go there right now, uh, shielding your eyes and other things. But um, there is a tendency for us all, I think, particularly in the world in which we live in 2022, to represent a whitewashed image of what we want the world to see of our lives. And then there's the reality, right? Sometimes the reality isn't quite so glamorous as those pictures out on Instagram or other, other forms of social media. I want you to think about this concept of misrepresentation as we begin navigating through the account of Noah and the flood, which Mike just read from Genesis 6. So take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. We're going to be drilling down on one verse, one example today, Hebrews 11, verse 7. As you're turning there, I'll simply share by way of introduction that I am convinced that the biblical account we are considering today, the account of Noah and the flood, is one of the most commonly, perhaps the most grossly misrepresented biblical accounts and just think about it. If you were to say, what, or if I were to ask you, what, what first comes to your mind? What pictures, what images, what thoughts? When I say Noah's Ark, most of us growing up in southwestern Pennsylvania on the last vestiges of, of Christendom in our post-Christian world, most of us have pictures in our minds of cute little animals marching two by two, and boy, they're colorful, and the sun is shining, and everybody's got a smile on their face. It almost looks like, right, if you walk into a church nursery or you open some kids' Bibles, the account of Noah and the ark almost looks like it's a cruise, right? Just a vacation meets, uh, like, a, like a cruise meets a zoo, right? One, one of those. And we've got our little play toys and our, our, our cutesy little images. The fact is, when I'm testing a kid's Bible, we've got a couple kids, maybe you've heard that before, one, one, one on the way. When I'm testing out kids' Bibles or, or, or curricula, one of the first things I do is, is grab a children's Bible and I open it to the account of Noah. It's one of the biggies. I know it's going to be in there. And if I read about these, uh, the animals marching two by two alone, if I'm seeing pictures of floating on the ark and, uh, and happiness and joy, and there is no concept in that story whatsoever of God's justice, sin, and its terrible consequences and what that meant. I'm just going to close that book and slide it on away. That's not going to be one that we're going to read in our family. Why? Because that is a gross 
misrepresentation of God's truth. And, and if that's the purpose of this Bible, just to sort of teach our kids that Noah had a narky arky or whatever, whatever the, however the song goes, we've, we've missed it. It's important that we not only know facts about God, but that we learn rightly to, to discern, to determine who God is and who we ought to be in light of the biblical account. Noah's account of the flood is one that I often use as a, as a test, a litmus test, if you will. So let's pause this morning as we, as we really consider his example, as we drill down, as we work through our uh, Hebrews 11 text slowly, seeing examples after example of faith lived out in real time. I want us to pause to consider the sheer weight of what we're considering of what Mike has just read from Genesis chapter 6. Friends, this is serious stuff. If you continue reading, and I, I, uh, I guess we had mercy on, on, on Mike. He, he read one chapter, Genesis 6. The, the flood account spans into chapter 7 and, and 8 and, and 9 as well. But, uh, but we read, after the flood hits, after God's promised judgment finally arrives in Genesis 7.22, everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. I don't know how you draw a kid's picture about that or what action figures you would use in the bathtub to, to play with. And you, you, you get the gravity of this, right? Everything. Men, women, children, animals, birds, everything with the breath of life in their nostrils, dead. I think it's appropriate that we would let that sink in for a moment. Let that percolate. Friends, I don't think it's a stretch to say that the flood, Genesis 6 and following, and the example of Noah is by far the most terrifying and comprehensive display of God's wrath, of God's just judgment against sin that the world has ever known up to this point. Can you think of a bigger one? Can you think of a more glaring example of God's justice? Needed out against sin. Listen, never has there been a tragedy in the history of the world. Never has there been a tragedy to remotely compare to the terrifying scope of the flood. Nothing, nothing even comes close. That's why Albert Moeller, who is the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and Louisville, Kentucky, a theologian and, uh, and a very helpful, godly man, says it this way. The flood, Moeller asserts, is the archetypal example of God's judgment and the catastrophe. I think that's the right word. The catastrophe of human sin. It's appropriate 
that we start with a right understanding of what we're talking about. Everything with the breath of life in its nostrils was killed justly by a holy, a high and holy God in judgment of sin. And yet, here we are, walking through Hebrews chapter 11 as a church, and we've arrived at this example, this shocking, terrifying, cataclysmic example of crisis and tragedy. And Scripture lays this account before us, and specifically Noah's example, as a, as a beacon of light, as an exemplar for us to learn from. Right here in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. We're defining what, what is this stuff of faith that we hold? What's, what's the gospel? And then what are examples? What does this thing look like lived out? Well, Noah is held out for us as one for whom real faith in real time was exercised. Not only do we see the account of the flood in, in Hebrews 11, it's just writ large throughout the, the Bible. Jesus himself, you know, the Savior, he tells us that this flood that we're considering, this is a picture for us of what's to come. Now let's read it together. Hebrews chapter 11, as we continue to comb our way through this amazing chapter, Faith exhibited through Noah and his example. Hebrews eleven seven. By faith, the author of Hebrews says, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear. Say that with me. Reverent fear. Big concept. Constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. There's the Holy Spirit's one-liner, the Holy Spirit's one-sentence synopsis of the account of the flood here in Hebrews chapter 11. So we just simply, for the balance of our time, want to, as we consider what God has done, who God is, and who he's made us to be, we want to just consider three basic observations here about Noah and the flood account from Hebrews eleven seven. Here's Here's the first thing. Noah's faith, you're looking right at the text with me here, right? Everything we're going to say is coming right from the text. So, so look down on your phones and your Bibles. There should be one in the, the seats ahead of you. Hebrews eleven seven. we see first that Noah's faith demonstrated a reverent fear for God's warnings. It's a big deal. Part of what faith looks like, certainly what faith looked like for Noah was a reverent fear in the light of God's warnings. Question, why was Noah specifically commended? Right here. Verse 7, that's, that's where we're camping out. He was warned by God of the judgment that would come, and then he responded to the news, to the calamity of that judgment in reverent fear. What was it? 
that motivated Noah to live faithfully? What was it that motivated Noah to obey? Well, it was God's warnings. Noah, friends, trembled at God's warnings. Remember what Mike just read? Genesis 6, we'll just take verse 13, I'll I'll read it to you. God told Noah in advance what was going to happen, and, and God said to Noah, Genesis 6, 13, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So, Noah believed God's warning of an impending flood. He was given instructions about what to do in light of this destruction that was coming. Build an ark. Go for wood. And here's its dimensions. And man, this was a mammoth task. And Noah, motivated by, according to Scripture, motivated by reverent fear, by godly fear, he was spurred on by the, by, by the holiness of God, God's holy hatred for sin, and the terrifying coming reality of God's judgment against it acted in faith. And here's, here's what I'd like us to do. Just pause for a moment as we're looking back on Noah's life, Noah's account, Noah's faith. And kind of look around the landscape of our lives in 2022. Noah heard God's warnings and in reverent fear was spurred on by them. And friend, so should you too. Now, sometimes when you start to talk like this, you hit all kinds of objections. Maybe objection flags are flying in your mind right now. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, Zeb. What do you mean? warnings and and fear of God and His justice and His judgment. Kind of sounds like you're trying to scare people into obeying God. This hellfire and brimstone stuff kind of sounds like you're you're trying to scare people into heaven, Zeb. No, we're just reading the Bible and trying to repeat what it says. We're focused on one vote, on one verse, right? Zero in, Hebrews 11, 7, you're still there, right? Out of reverent fear for God's warnings, Noah was able to, to walk in faith. This reality, friends, is plastered throughout the pages of Scripture. Now, what I'm not trying to say, what I'm not trying to project to you this morning is that the, the essence of our faith in God is this terrified fear that gets us snapped into line obeying Him. No, all throughout the pages of Scripture is echoed, it's just dripping from Scripture, the, the echo of God's love and God's grace Don't think in such a one-dimensional way that because of God's warnings, we just ignore the rest of the story. God's love permeates, it pulsates through the pages of Scripture. We see God's grace even in Noah's example. He finds favor in the eyes of God. A sinner. Not just before before the flood, but after the flood. If you keep on reading, gosh, it's just exhausting. 
doesn't take very long until the wheels fall off the bus with Noah. But Noah receives grace, the love and mercy, the goodness of God, which we've been singing about, of course, is at the very core of what it means to know who God is and to follow Him. And yet, God's message to wicked sinners like you and me is indeed, I love you through Jesus. But listen, it's not only I love you through Jesus. In light of who Christ is, there are some things that God calls us to do and be. Not to be right with Him, but God in His saving, merciful call to His people will not only speak, I love you, He'll also speak words of warning. I mean, come on, we all understand this. For those of you who are parents or grandparents or spent more than like 15 minutes around a child, what if you only spoke words of positive affirmation and encouragement to kids and never corrected them, never warned them? I mean, like Lord of the Flies, right? Like, what, what would life look like? I mean, probably, probably a lot like my house, right? You just step in and like, ah, all right, chaos. No. God lovingly warns His people. And one of the ways which He guards and protects and preserves them through His goodness, through His love for them, is to tell them the hard news of where their sin is leading and what they ought to do about it. Massive spoiler alert. Scripture, friends, repeatedly tells us that this flood, this warning, that this cataclysmic catastrophe in Genesis chapter 6 is just a picture of what's to come in the future. It's a picture, the flood is repeatedly placed before us as the people of God in the pages of the Bible as just a picture of the final and future judgment to come. Listen, just as in Noah's day, wickedness was rampant. Just as in Noah's day, God's word and God's warnings were ignored. Sound familiar? So shall it be. In the last days. Listen, these are Jesus' words. And now I put it up on the screen so you don't need to flip there. Matthew 24, verses 38 to 39, with then the punchline a few verses later in verse 44. Jesus speaking. And Jesus, the Savior, reaches back into his Old Testament and points to the flood and says, just like it was then, that's what it's going to be like in the future. Let's read Matthew 24, beginning in verse 38. Jesus says, For as in those days before the flood, they were doing normal stuff, right? They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came. And swept them all away. And Jesus says, so will it 
be. So will be, excuse me, the coming of the Son of Man. So, I love it when the Bible, when the Lord gives us the punchline. He just, he just bottoms, bottom lines it for us sometimes because, hey, we, we're, we're, we're blockheads, right? Just spirit, spiritually, we forget, we, we, we miss it. And so Jesus here, looking back at the account of the flood, says, just like it was then, so will it be in the future. Now here's what you ought to do about it. And he gives us the punchline in verse 44. You ready for it? Therefore, here's what you ought to do, people of God. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So, if we're just going to be biblical, I'm just going to repeat what the Bible says and, and seek to, to live it out, seek to apply it to our lives, here's what we see. As we, as we look at the example of Noah and the account of the flood, Scripture itself, the New Testament, your Savior, gives you the application. He gives you one thing that you ought to do in light of this example. Here it is. Be ready. That's what Jesus says. As he looks back to Noah's faith, looks back to the the account of the flood, Jesus says, be ready. Because just like it was then, it will be when I return. The Son of of Man, excuse me, is, is coming at a time when you don't know. So live your lives, followers of Jesus, in readiness, with a sense of anticipation, with a sense of expectation. The $5 theological word for that, the, the Bible word for that is imminence. We are to expect, as followers of Jesus, the imminent return of our Savior. And it can happen today. It can happen at any time. Wasn't that the last thing Jesus said? I mean, if you flip to the end, Revelation 22, the last statement of your Savior to us in all of recorded Scripture, Behold, I am coming soon. See, there's a sense, guys, in which it's not okay for us to be sitting on our spiritual hands. And we ought to be a people who are eagerly leaning into the Lord, who are scanning the horizon, as it were, living our lives in eager expectation of His coming. I don't know if it's going to come in my lifetime or not. There's all kinds of speculations. We don't know the the day or the hour. But as for the, the breath that is your life, here one day, gone the next, like a blade of grass, like a, like a vapor, like a breath. What's it look like for you and me to live our lives here and now in the light of the soon return of Jesus? So, so, so let me break it down a little further, right? If you, just, if you just need some practical things to do, here's the first macro application, if you will, to the example of Noah and the flood. It's just a question for you. Here's your question. Are you saved? If Jesus is Lord, and He is, and if He's coming back to reward those who believe 
that he died for the sins of humanity and rose three days later from the dead and are, and are seeking to live his life and, and spread his good news, his gospel. If Jesus is coming back for his people and coming back to judge the wickedness and the sin of humanity as well. And it is a really big deal. As we're looking at this example of the flood, we're just reading our Bibles, we're just going through Hebrews 11, that we asked ourselves the question, have I done this? I mean, the stakes, friends, are spiritually significant, to put it very bluntly. Eternally significant. I'm convinced that one of the greatest mission fields in the church in America today is on Sunday morning. When people who have grown up hearing all about Jesus with a head filled or semi filled with random Bible facts, read all about the animals marching in two by two to the ark, and have not reconciled their own sinfulness with the justice of God and the punishment that was paid upon Jesus as our substitute to take our wickedness, to take the wages of our sin, the death upon Himself that we deserve so that we can live forever with Him. This is is what it means to be a Christian. Noah trembled at the warning of God's justice and the coming judgment. And listen, friend. Your Savior, we just read it a few weeks ago on Easter. Jesus trembled in the garden as he was preparing to shoulder that same judgment earned by you and me. Sweating blood, drops of blood brought to the end of himself, forsaken by God. Why did he do it? To offer us what we could never do for ourselves. The gift of eternal life. As Noah trembled at God's warnings, as Jesus trembled at the consequences of the death that He was about to absorb for us, so friends, we must tremble at the justice of God and then surrender to Him and His solution for us expressed in Jesus and Jesus alone. When we do that, we come before God. We can, we can come before Him in confidence because Jesus' righteousness, because Jesus' life becomes our life. If you're here today, just, we're just never going to stop beating this drum. We're never going to sh- stop reminding ourselves of the gospel. Come to Jesus. Life is not about you heaping up enough good deeds to impress God and saying no to enough sin that He would sweep you under the rug of heaven. No, come to Jesus and live. Here's, here's a more particular example. For the first, first thing we have to do in light of the, the, the reality of the flood and the judgment that was and the judgment that's coming is to make sure that we're sure that we're sure that we're reconciled to Jesus. Here's the second thing we need to do. I'm convinced this is a big one for us who are followers of Jesus. We need to, friends, read and heed the whole counsel of God's Word. That's what we need to do. We need to read our Bibles and not just cherry-pick the parts 
that we like. The parts that are easy. The parts that are our favorites. We need to hear over and over and over again, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Yes, that's central to the message. And we also need to hear by the grace of God, judgment is coming. Separate yourself. Sanctify yourself. Mortify the sin which so easily entangles. Run from sin. Run to Jesus. We can't just hear Jesus loves me and then go skip off to follow the passions of our hearts and our self-interest. We must hear, because He loved me, He bled and died for me, that I might now die to my own sin and live to righteousness. May we be a church, FCC, Friendship Community Church. May we be people who respond to the goodness of God Not by marginally reading the parts of the Bible that we think make us feel better or that are easy for us to understand. But may we be people who lean into the whole revelation of God and say, God, because you saved me, because you made me new, because you love me so much in Christ that you would send him to die for me and and rise again, so I will spend the rest of my life pursuing you. That's That's what this is. It's not radical Christianity, it's Christianity 101. May the love of God and His kindness compel us to heed not only the messages of His love, but also His warnings as well, just like Noah did. All right, a few more quick thoughts. Second observation I think we see here in Hebrews eleven seven is this, that Noah's faith persisted through the unseen human objections that he faced. The unseen human element that he faced. Hebrews 11 explicitly tells us that these events of the flood that Noah was warned about, he didn't see them. All he had was what? God's word. All he had was God's warning. There was no, no one couldn't look around and see the, the storm clouds brewing. Think about all of the objections. Think about all of the obstacles facing his life, his obedience. In other words, Noah was operating on faith just like us, not by sight. This was what Hebrews 11 continues to point us back to again and again and again. If you're right there in your Bibles, look back to verse 1. It's basically how faith is defined. Faith is being sure. It's being certain of things not seen. Think for a moment, for for just a moment, about the human perspective, from a human perspective, about what Noah was asked to do. This was absolutely absurd. It was totally ridiculous what God was asking him to do. Obedience to God for Noah looked like years, like a bunch of them. Years of investing, sweat, labor into all-consuming work. The effort expended. Decade in, decade out. Some of you put some time in at at your jobs. 
30 years, 40 years, maybe more. Think about year in, year out. With no evidence that God's warning is any closer now to when it was when He first spoke it to you. Just the labor, the sweat equity that He put into this thing. At the, at the expense. Think about the mocking world around Him. Look at old Noah. He didn't even build that whatever it is, that monstrosity in the middle of dry ground. Raving about God judging the world. Think about the cost. No, I don't know about the finances in Noah's day, but I seriously doubt that he was able to go to the bank and take out a boat loan. Think about the cost for the project that God had entrusted to him. I don't know a whole lot about his personal life, but I'm sure he would have spent some of those resources in another way, some of his time in another way, he was just thinking about himself with not a lot to show for it through the eyes of the world. Noah is wearing himself out, heeding the words of a God he can't see, but he knows is true. His words he knows are eternal and trustworthy. Just consider before we move on to our last point, the human element of Noah's faith. And I wonder if some of us, maybe, on a very smaller scale, don't feel like this. Moms, I wonder sometimes if you feel like your years are just melting away. And you're spending yourself chasing kids and repeating yourself and repeating yourself and repeating yourself and discipline. And are you making any difference? And just the, the hard pick and shovel work. Moms, dads. I wonder if you find yourself in a job. Thankless, maybe. And you're just spending your days and you're just chipping away. And you're trying to be faithful. Or you're waiting on God's promise and you can't see what's around the corner and you're just like a hamster wheel, right? Like a little gerbil wheel. You just feel like you're going and going and going. And there's no evidence as you look through the eyes of the world that would seek to say that the way that you're living your life is worth it. Matter of fact, or maybe people from the outside looking in, rolling their eyes at you, your priorities, your church attendance, your Bible reading and prayer, the things that you choose to say no to in order to say yes to the Lord. Do you feel like this? Is it worth it? I mean, sometimes you feel like, this doesn't make any sense. I am worn slap out. And you're looking around and you're feeling like, man, it feels like I'm all alone. Nobody else, or at least the, the tide seems to be running in the other direction. Here I am swimming upstream. Is this even making a difference? I wonder if Noah felt any of those things. As he was spending his time and his resources, and his life dedicated 
to following an absurd mission in the eyes of the world. Friends, we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. And our priorities, and our time, and our money, our resources ought to be spent differently. And you're probably going to face some criticism if you haven't already. Get used to it. In the eyes of the world, as they consider, what are you doing? They scoff. Let me just remind you this morning, in light of Noah's example, it's worth it. Your remarkably unremarkable life in the eyes of the world, lived faithfully day in, day out for Jesus, is worth it. He is who he says he is. He's coming back for all those who cling to him. Noah believed God. He trusted God's word, even though he didn't see the, the result for years and years and years. Noah had nothing to go on except God's word, which for Noah was more than enough. Is it for you? He's more than enough. His word, his promise is more than enough. Last thing we see here in Hebrews chapter 11 that Noah's faith this is a hard word. Noah's faith, look at the, look at the verse, 11.7, Noah's faith condemned the world, condemned the world with an unmistakable testimony. Noah's faith condemned the world with a visible, tangible testimony to the watching world around him. In other words... Noah's outward obedience to his inward faith was building a tangible, palpable testimony to everyone around him of the truthfulness of God. I think one biblical commentator, Donald Guthrie, captures this really well. I'm just going to read you his words. I can't say it any better. Donald Guthrie says, The ark was in any case a visible evidence of Noah's faith to his unbelieving and scoffing contemporaries. The sight of the ark being constructed was a challenge to those contemporaries and forced on them their own condemnation. They were in fact rejecting the divine warning by their unbelief. I mean, think about it. Years and years. By the way, some, some biblical scholars will say Noah spent 120 years building the ark. I'm not going to get into the timing. You can, you can go chase that if you want. You think there's sufficient biblical evidence to, uh, to, to spell out 120 years. However long it was, this, this thing was a long time building. And here's the point. Let's just bottom line it here at the end. This thing, this monstrosity of a boat, this ark, becomes a glaring testimony to the watching world that God is. He just is. And that we need to align ourselves around Him. Let me just, just flash a picture at you. We don't know exactly what the ark looked like. Some of you have been to the ark encounter. I've not been yet. I would like to go sometime. And... Um, there's some debate about the exact dimensions of the ark because uh, the, the dimensions 
in Genesis 6 that were spelled out are using cubits. Well, I mean, we, we know roughly that the cubit was the, the distance between a man's, the top of his finger, or the top of his hand, to his elbow. There's a cubit, right? So, so a cubit can vary, but conservatively, right, on, on the conservative end, Noah's Ark was about as long as a football field and a half. You can kind of see here in the image, a, a typical American football field compared to the size of an ark. Three decks, right? That's what God told Noah, three decks. That's approximately, when you measure out the cubits, 75 feet high. Three stories of football, a football field and a half. We were talking about some insane square footage. No power tools. Gosh, this took a while to build. And as board by board, over a year over a year, the world around Noah watched this physical structure, this physical form come together. The ark begins to stand as a glaring testimony to what God has said. And yet they continue, don't they? To follow their own sinful interests. Rejecting God's testimony and His coming judgment. Well, let's, let's end with a note for us. What's the point? Noah's action, Noah's faith, Noah's testimony condemned the world with a physical, tangible Life and example to who God was. Noah's words, Noah's actions stood out like a beacon of light in his dark world to God's truth, to the error of their sinful ways. So ask yourself, Christian, this morning, is, is there physical, tangible testimony in my life to the watching world that Jesus is Lord. I mean, don't build a boat. I mean, God didn't give you that assignment. But I'm asking you, is your faith, like Noah's, demonstrated? Is it anchored, not just in, in words, is it not just some ethereal concept, but is your faith alive? Faith without works, James reminds us, is dead. Why? Well, because a living heart, a faith, a, a faith with a heartbeat works itself out. Good works, which were prepared for you, friend, in advance. Not because your works save you, but because your works demonstrate to the world around you for good. Or for them just to shrug their spiritual shoulders. You're not in control of the results. That Jesus is Lord. Well, let me just ask you some, some practical examples. How about travel ball on Sunday? Like, a big, big deal. Taking kids, families away from church, away from the priority of discipling their families in Christian community. Is the testimony of your life, believer, that you're going to spend your time, that you're going to organize your priorities a little differently? 
You can pick any number of them. How about VBS? VBS is right around the corner. We're going to be hopping. This place is going to be crawling with volunteers, just you know, singing songs and sharing the gospel and pointing kids to hope, to eternal life in Jesus Christ. We need some help. Maybe. Maybe you ought to volunteer. Even if you don't want to. I mean, maybe it's a big enough deal that you could even slip out of work a little early to make this thing a priority. Do you have to do that? No. You, you have to organize your schedule certain ways with, with sports or recreation. I, I'm just giving you some, some examples. None of these things are gospel truths. I'm just asking you to consider the stuff of your life. Celebrity crushes and the way that you talk about people on TV and, and gossip at the water cooler at work or with your friends. Gosh, I'll tell you, one of the ways that my wife and I are trying to do this, we've got a little six-month-old foster baby in our home right now, and she is delightful. We know not everybody can or, or will do this kind of work, but what we're saying is, Lord, how can we use our family, our resources, our home, in a way that can demonstrate that you're good to be praying for kids who are, who are in a broken environment and to, be, to love, love on them for as long as you'd give us time with them, to point them to you. Noah's life condemned the world because he lived out physically, tangibly, the conviction of his unseen faith. That's how I want us to end today with that question. How are you, friend? In your own way, I'm just throwing some examples at the wall, maybe like spaghetti, something will stick. How are you? Not just checking a Sunday box, but prioritizing these convictions that you hold eternally to be true. His word's enough. He's coming back. And we ought to tremble at his warnings and yet rejoice in the hope that he has held out for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, for the example of Noah. And there's just so much here, Lord, but we pray that you would give us continued conviction. Lord, that you would help us to have the courage to walk out our faith in ways that are demonstrable, that are clear to the world around us with our words, with our actions, with our priorities, gosh, sometimes even with our apologies. Let us in every way, God, shine like beacons of light because we've been set apart for you. Everything is different now, Jesus, that we've trusted in you. And we thank you that the destruction of our sin doesn't have to be ours but that because you paid our price, we, like Noah, can be sealed in your love and safely sheltered in your ark forever. Lord, would you, would you help us to run with this message? Would you help us to spur each other along the way? In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.